Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Here's to the paper pushers, the rush hour warriors, and the gotta get awayers. Trade the daily grind for a place to unwind, where you can rise with the tide and roll down the boardwalk, where you can eat french fries for lunch and ice cream for dinner, where your only commute is your walk to the beach, where every day feels like Saturday. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Notes from America has a deep interest in Black history all year round. You know that. But we do also take note of Black History Month. And this year, we're thinking about it in the present tense. Throughout February, we'll bring you a series of conversations we're loosely calling Black History is Now. We're going to meet people doing cool things in Black spaces who think about their work as part of a continuum. Like, it grew out of something that came before. It's trying to feed something or someone that's going to come after. Emil Wilbekin is one such person. The Grammys are tonight, and it's worth thinking about just how dominant both hip-hop and R&B are in today's global music market. Industry data suggests these genres easily combine for the largest market share. At one point a few years back, Nielsen data showed eight out of the 10 most streamed artists were rappers. And Emil Wilbekin had a front row seat for the era in which the seeds of that commercial dominance were planted, the early 1990s, a time when the success of a few massive Black artists, people like Michael Jackson and Prince and Tina Turner, kind of opened the commercial door for this eruption of unapologetically Black popular culture. There were Black fashion designers, there were Black fashion models, there was, you know, movies and TV. So we were very, very present, and it was exciting. It was an exciting time to be Black, right? You know, there was this exciting time to to see yourself represented on all platforms of media. Emil helped build one of the most important platforms for showcasing that talent. He was one of the founding editors of Vibe magazine, which was created by Quincy Jones in 1992 to chronicle the moment. And Vibe was where a lot of people who became synonymous with 90s music, I mean, Mary J. Blige, Snoop, Biggie, it's where they made their glossy debut into popular media. Emil was part of Vibe's team throughout the decade and went on to serve as its editor-in-chief, where he won a National Magazine Award, a recognition that few people back in 1992 could have imagined for a magazine about hip-hop. He's still writing about music and culture these days, and he's leading a project called Native Son, which builds community among Black queer men. I asked Emil to situate his own life's work in the continuum of Black music history. 
starting with a TV show that shaped his dreams as a little boy in the early 70s. I mean, Soul Train in my household was a ritual every Saturday morning. You know, we would have brunch, which we actually called brunch, which is funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, shows you how bougie I am. Um, but we had brunch and, you know, we, my mother would cook and we would sit there as a family and watch Soul Train. Soul Train. And it, it was just a cultural ritual. It was a black ritual. It was um, inspiring. It was kind of like Saturday church for us. Mm. And as a kid watching that, like, what was capturing your imagination? Oh, I mean, <laughs> so for me, being the uh, creative kid that I was, it was everything from the music, the choreography and dancing, and then the outfits. I mean, it was, for me, it was like, a plethora of creativity and, <laughs> and black brilliance, right? Just what what wasn't inspiring when you watch Soul Train, right? And of course, the Don Cornelius of it all. <laughs> the Don Corn- <laughs> and the Scrabble board. Yes. Cornelia. Hey there, and welcome aboard. You're right on time for another magnificent ride on the Soul Train. So talk to me about both him and his place in this, this cultural history. Like, well, I think Don Cornelius, for me, really represents, you know, a Black shepherd of culture, right? He really believed in holding space for us to see ourselves. And so Black music has always been kind of regulated to the sidelines, not given credit for being, you know, the first sound of rock and roll or having the most incredible voices that then uplift everyone else. We were always kind of in the back. And so for Don Cornelius to have this vision to televise a show that brought the music to life, that made us the superstars, the centerpieces. We were the first act, the second act, and the third act, right? And we were able to dance to our own music, and we let other cultures in to share in that revelry, because <laughs> that's what Black people do. And, um, and to own that space and own that representation of Black art. I think that's what I give Don Cornelius credit for. Why was the television part of it important? You know, I'm thinking about the Grammys and this big, these big TV moments. Um, why was that crucial? I mean, television then was the future, right? And so, you know, American Bandstand and Dick Clark, they all had these dance shows. From Philadelphia, it's time for America's favorite dance party, American Band. You know, white teens would go on there dancing to black music. But we never had a platform where we could see ourselves dancing to our own music, right? And so I think televising it gave it more power and it, it reached a broader audience. So Soul Train inspired a young Emil Wilbekin. After a break, we'll learn how he and his colleagues at Vibe then built another platform for bringing a new kind of Black music to a broader commercial audience. Stay with us. Hey everyone, this is Kusha. I'm a producer. 
A few weeks ago, we did a special live show at the Apollo to honor Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Now, as part of that conversation, we asked some high schoolers what the phrase young, gifted, and black meant to them. Here's one response we got from a listener named Michael. It speaks out to me because um, when you're young and gifted and black, your soul is intact. It's a message behind the song itself. I'm, I'm just blessed to be black, young, gifted, and um, my soul is intact. <laughs> so um, I love it. And thank you for actually for that song. It was amazing. It was beautiful. The world has been cruel to the blacks and um, to the African-Americans. But, you know, we stand strong as what we believe in. And um, talent is us. We are the world. I just, I love it. I love it. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. And thanks to everyone who's sending us messages. Now, you can hear that full episode, including the song Michael mentioned. Just check out the episode called The Legacy of MLK Jr. is to be Young, Gifted, and Black. And if you have something you want to say, send us a voice message. Just go to notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button that says start recording. You can also see more notes like Michael's on our Instagram feed. Our handle is at noteswithkai. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. And this week, we're beginning a series we're loosely calling Black History is Now. I'm talking with Emil Wilbekin, one of the founding editors of Vibe magazine in the early 1990s, about how Soul Train laid a foundation for his own life's work. So I asked Emil about the creation of the Soul Train Awards in 1986. I came across this quote from Don Cornelius. He said at the time, they were asking him about why he was creating it. And he said, we tend to get taken for granted. We tend to get ignored as a group of creative people. Black music is too big and too powerful not to have its own award show. That's right. And, you know, to me, it's a harder idea to understand that in 2023, I think, maybe, than the 1986 reality he was, he's describing. I mean, there are many challenges for Black artists today, but in a world of, you know, Beyonce and Jay-Z, not to mention Lizzo and Lil Nas X, and, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think it's hard to really grasp what he's talking about there. I, can can you help people understand, like, what role the Soul Train Awards was filling in the culture? Well, I think for us, it was really filling this void of you didn't see us front and center on award shows, right? We were, we may perform, we may present, but not in a way where it was our music, our audience, our community. And I think it's something that back then was a big deal. This is around the time, too, of music videos really Mm -hmm. coming into play. So it's a a parallel path of the music videos and what MTV was doing, but MTV still wasn't showing a lot of Black music. So there wasn't a place to see ourselves 
projected in this way and then celebrated and then celebrated by our own. And I think that's what made the Soul Train Awards so special because it's our people, it's for us, by us and honoring us, right? Yeah. It, it makes me think about other sort of big Black-led TV mu- moments and music. Mm. Like, we have to talk about Motown 25. Um, yes. I uh, still have such <laughs> a clear emotional memory of that broadcast. I was 10 years old, you know? But yeah. the moment yeah. of Michael Jackson coming out in that glove and a hat and debuting the moonwalk. <laughs> do, do you have a memory of that? I mean, yes, and it's like you can never unsee it because, you know, when we talk about kind of black magic, right, that's what I think of when I think from a cultural perspective. Mm. What he was doing almost didn't feel human because the way he was moving, it was so smooth. The music, the outfit, and he literally took everyone's breath away. This got Emil and I talking about other moments in which Black artists made really like disruptive appearances in mainstream TV shows like the Grammys and the Oscars. A beautiful one was at the 1988 Grammys when opera superstar Luciano Pavarotti canceled at the last minute and they had to get Aretha Franklin to step in for him. Chero, I mean, Aretha Franklin, first of all, greatest voice of all time, um, stepping in for Pavarotti at the last minute and kind of reading through this aria and, and kind of phonetically memorizing it, right, to come out and sing. So for an opera singer, period, that is a huge feat to perform that song and live, right? And then for her to be able to do that in like not much time and to really slay it. I mean, it just, it, ta- it really showed you how black art transforms genres, right? Is it fair to, to talk about those kind of movements in the way I did, like as disruptions? I think disruption is right because as much as, I think as much as we lead so much of culture, we still were not given full credit. And that's why I was kind of, Thinking about your previous question about you can't really see that today, but you still can, actually, mm. because we're still left out of so many conversations and we're still kind of second class citizens in many ways. We always, as Black people, have to disrupt things to make sure that we get credit for things. Mm. So, of course, if Aretha Franklin's going to give in the opportunity to sing opera at the Grammys, she's gonna slay, because that's what we do. Well, all of this history um, informed and inspired your professional choices, I gather. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk about how you understood the work you and your colleagues set out to do when you created Vibe in 1993. So, yeah, Vibe was definitely a very special moment in time, and I always tell people it was my first great love, because Our mission, basically dictated by Quincy Jones, was how do we celebrate Black music and culture in a way that Rolling Stone had for rock and roll and the way that Vanity Fair had for Hollywood. And 
there was just a group of us that believed that these stories were really important, that these artists were larger than life. And we wanted to bring that to life in a time where hip hop is just really starting to build its foundation in a way that popular music is kind of paying attention to it, but not really. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so it was this very, very uh, profound moment in time of like, what does a magazine look like that celebrates hip hop, R&B, rap music, dance music, dance hall reggae, uh, dub music? What does that look like? And then it was just all these people clamoring to be in the magazine and on the covers because they weren't seen in mainstream publications and definitely not on the cover is be unless they died. Mm. So it was dark. a huge yeah, opportunity. Unless they died. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Unless they died. What role you think it played in like the commercial world of music um, for these artists? Mm -hmm. Well, it was important for record labels specifically who didn't have a lot of venues to place their artists, right? So, you know, they they would sell, right? But being on the cover of Vibe magazine or being featured in Vibe magazine was a really, really big deal because it was co-signing kind of from Quincy Jones, right? And his right. legacy that this is what's hot, this is what's next. So, you know, the first issue was Tretch from Naughty by Nature. OPP was huge in the streets, in the hood. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. after that, it was huge on MTV. Ladies, right? And so, you know, the second cover is, is Snoop Dogg. From the depths of the sea, back to the black Snoop Doggy Dog Pokey is the, the, the And like that, I mean, people knew kind of who he was and West Coast music. But to then to be on the cover of Vibe magazine with a full cover story, um, I think pretty much helped launch his career. And yeah. so we saw that happen over and over again. Yeah. We, of course, cannot talk about Vibe and its history in this moment um, without touching on the on its role in the dispute between Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls. Mm -hmm. uh, Biggie was ultimately killed outside of a Vibe after party um, for the Soul Train Awards in mm -hmm. 1997. A variety of media have been blamed for inflaming the tensions between those artists and generally the idea of beef in hip-hop. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really want to litigate that dispute so much <laughs> as... Right. Uh, I just wonder about how you think about Biggie's death in that moment and whether mm -hmm. was it or was it not a marker of some sort in this history that we're talking about? I think that Biggie's death was definitely a very dark marker and moment for Black culture, right? And Black history, because arguably still the best rapper of all time is struck down way early in his career. And I think the fact that it was kind of centered around gang-related violence, East Coast, West Coast, um, and Black-on-Black -black crime, like Black folks beefing with other mm -hmm. Black folks about who's the best, um, that's sad to me, you know? Biggie and Tupac separately, both brilliant, young Black men who are also like a window to the future, right? They're kind of shifting the way that we 
unjust music that we think about our community, that we think about how we look as Black men, how we move through this world. And then because of a battle between both fractions, the two stars both get killed. It's like Shakespearean, really. Yeah. And, um, you know, unfortunately, it was a really hard moment to be alive at that time because as exciting as everything was happening with the music and the culture and the vibrance of it all, it was scary because you never knew if you were at a party, what would happen. Mm. Um, there was just a lot of violence at that time that, you know, is unfortunate because it kind of spoke to, to white supremacy and how, you know, we can turn on each other, right? Like, get them to turn on each other, and that's what happened. And it's really sad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your work on Native Son. Uh, your your work sure. at Vibe was at least in part giving Black artists um, the celebration and attention that part of the commercial mainstream denied them. And I do wonder about your experience of that as a Black gay man. Sure. So Native Sun is a movement, community, and platform which was created to inspire and empower and celebrate Black gay and queer men. You know, I was the first openly gay Black man to edit a national magazine. And so when we won the National Magazine Award for General Excellence, it was a really big deal because... Heretofore, black gay men kind of were always regulated to the backdrop, right? We were the choreographer, the hairdresser, the stylist. Um, we may have had some role, but it wasn't really given a lot of attention. And so one of the things that I did while I was editor-in-chief was ensure that we were covering HIV and AIDS, we were covering um, LGBTQ folks across the spectrum at a time where that wasn't popular. And so I got a lot of heat for doing that coverage, but I felt like it was important as a Black gay man to bring those stories to the forefront, but also to overall health and well-being of the Black community, we needed to have those conversations. So a lot of that is kind of what led to where we are now with Native Son. And I would have to say that also a big chunk of my time at Essence after Vibe um, really inspired a lot of Native Sons. So I saw how Black women really lifted each other up in the way that Essence did. Say, say more about that for a second. What do you, unpack that a little bit about what you learned sure. at Essence that you thought this is import, an important idea for me to carry forward amongst Black queer men. Sure. I mean, you know, Essence Black Women in Hollywood was like this huge lunch that they did during the Oscars to celebrate, you know, Black women in Hollywood who were breaking through. And I sat there like, I want this for my community. I yeah. want to be in community with other Black, gay, and queer men and feel empowered and inspired. And so what does that look like? And I remember being at this, it was like a women's empowerment luncheon that Lisa Nichols was hosting. And she talked about not pouring from your cup being empty, but from the overflow. Mm -hmm. And all the things she talked about, like I literally was like, bawling in the audience and I ran backstage to where she would come out and I was like, I need to talk to you because 
you just moved me in this way. And I know I'm not the target audience at this event, <laughs> but you, you spoke to me. <laughs> yeah. And so a lot of that, like, how do we as a community lift each other up? How do we see each other? How do we celebrate each other? How do we show up for each other? Um, really stuck with me. And I started researching kind of famous Black gay men. And it was really hard to find pictures and it was really hard to find information. Mm. And the more I dug, the more I was like, there's a need to create a platform, a movement where we see each other, that we know where we, from whence we came. You know, Emil, we first met um, in, gosh, I don't remember if it was the late 90s or early 2000s, um, as part of an effort to organize Black gay men around the response to HIV and sort of raise consciousness amongst ourselves. And I just, I think about that moment in the context of Native Son and the work you're doing now. Um, and, and I guess it just makes me want to think about like what, like the arc of Black gay male consciousness um, mm -hmm. in the culture um, from, from when we met to now. I, I don't know, yes. what does that make you think about? Um, it makes me think about creating safe spaces. And I mean, that's what Native Son really does because when we met, it was a safe space, right? Where we talked about who we are in the world, but who we are as black, gay, and queer folks in that particular space. And I think that we don't have enough of those safe spaces in the world. And so Native Son is really creating that where people can come out and say, hey, I'm HIV positive or hey, I may have drug addiction or hey, this and that, but I'm still okay. I'm still good because my community is going to support me in that. You know, I think what's definitely different from that moment in time when we met till now is that that CDC report hadn't come out, right? That in our lifetime, one in two black gay men who have sex with men will contract HIV. 50%. And so there's, there's so much work that still needs to be done. And a lot of it is, can only be done in safe spaces. Where do you see yourself and mm. the work that you have done and the work that you are doing in the continuum of our history? Well, I think you said it best earlier about disruption, right? And being disruptors. And I feel like I'm disrupting um, culture and community and really kind of presenting for a future generation, this is who you are, this is where you came from, and there's a whole community that looks like you that are thriving, surviving, and shining bright, right? I never thought that I would see in my lifetime a little Nas X. Let alone a Saucy Santana. So to have those artists exist in a world where they can be free, and then on top of it, you know, win Grammys and VMAs is almost beyond my wildest imagination. So if we can feed that, support that, and just build up this community of Black gay and queer folks so that they feel comfortable in the world and the world understands who they are and respects them for that, then Black history's been made. Thank you so, so much for that role in history and for this time. No, thank you for having me. This is amazing. 
Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Keep up with the show by following us wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. And you can always talk to us by going to our website at notesfromamerica.org, where you can just click on a little record button and leave us a voicemail right there. We'd love to hear from you. Mixing and theme music by Jared Paul. Matthew Mirando is our live engineer. Reporting, producing, and editing by Karen Frillman, Vanessa Handy, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I am Kai Wright. Thanks for spending this time with us. Thank you.